The fall conference season is right around the corner, and we've got two events that you need to put on your calendar. On October 19th, we are back with Transition AI New York. Transition AI is the leading B2B event for energy practitioners and artificial intelligence experts. The New York event will explore current use cases and deployments within electric utilities, the role AI can play in streamlining project development, maximizing revenues, and integrating DERs. Plus, I'm going to do some live interviews and storytelling on stage. We'll present some deep market research, and we'll have a workshop on use cases. Our listeners get 10% off by using the promo code PSPODS10. Come join me, our journalists and researchers, and a bunch of experts in Manhattan for Transition AI. Register at the link in the show notes or go to transition-ai.com. And for you West Coasters, Canary Media is holding another Canary Live. This one is in Berkeley, California. It is on October 3rd. These events are super fun. We've hosted a couple of them with Canary. Uh, Panelists are handpicked by the Canary editorial team, and they'll dive into all things related to the energy transition, the Inflation Reduction Act, technology, and uh, innovation. Drink, eat, socialize with clean energy leaders, investors, inventors, public leaders, and advocates. You can follow the link in the show notes to get your tickets to Canary Live Bay Area today. Transition AI New York, Canary Live Bay Area. Put them on your fall calendar for October. We'll see you there. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. So is anyone here like marking the Inflation Reduction Act's birthday with a special celebration? Y'all doing anything fun? Once we get all our stories done, we could go celebrate. Like a U.S.-made battery with icing on top, something like that? Keep the candles away from those. I'm having a, a dinosaur-themed pizza party for my three-year-old. I guess we could, uh, you know, add some signage up for IRA, too. <laughs> you could, like, set up a big wind gearbox and put a swing in it for the three-year-olds. Yeah. But it, make it a leave-the-dinosaurs-in-the-ground-themed oh, party. Yeah. There you go. The IRA is one year old, and it's already reshaping the energy and automotive industries here in the U.S. New factories for a wide array of clean energy components are being planned. Old factories are being reopened, retooled, or expanded. According to a Canary Media analysis, that's amounting to over $70 billion in new investments in the manufacturing sector alone. That includes electric cars, EV parts, batteries, battery recycling, and wind and solar assembly. Wind, solar, and battery developers are also planning major increases in deal flow and projects thanks to expanded tax credits. Meanwhile, companies building an emerging set of technologies like carbon removal, hydrogen, and novel long-duration storage are also expanding. But there are plenty of debates and uncertainties, ranging from how to structure subsidies, who benefits from them, and whether there'll be enough to keep supply chains in America for the long haul. Not to mention, how do we integrate all these new renewables given our severe grid constraints? This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a conversation with three journalists who are trying to figure out the lasting impacts of the IRA. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. 
We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. Maria Gallucci is a clean energy reporter at Canary Media. She focuses largely on hard-to-decarbonize sectors, and lately she's been reporting a lot on the wind manufacturing business. Hey, Maria. Hey, Stephen. Jeff St. John is the director of news and special projects at Canary Media. He's known for his uh, extremely meticulous deep dives on a wide range of technical subjects. And uh, Jeff, you've been real deep in it with the IRA lately. I, I've been trying, yeah. There's a lot to cover. And uh, thanks for having us on to talk about it. Julian Spector is a senior reporter at Canary covering storage and manufacturing, among many other things. And and he's been a man on the move visiting factory sites. You've been on the road a lot. It's true, yeah. I'm I'm one of the reporters on our team who I don't have any cats or corgis or small children, so uh, they could kind of send me off into the wilds and I'll, you know, just, just roam around until I get the story. <laughs> All right, so each of you is covering a different beat related to the IRA. And I think your combined expertise can tell us uh, a lot about how the nearly $400 billion in climate spending is actually starting to impact the energy economy. So I want to start with a question for each of you, the same question, which is, how would you characterize the last year by choosing just one word? And then I want you to explain why you chose it. So Maria, you go first. One word to describe the Inflation Reduction Act, I'd say anticipation. There's a lot of news. There's a lot of wondering what the guidance will be for some of these programs, a lot of expectations and um, hopes for how it might accelerate clean energy development. But um, so we're still, but we're still sort of in that anticipation phase, I would say. Yeah, my word for for the first year of the the Inflation Reduction Act is uh, I'm going to go with everywhere um, because while it's true we're still anticipating a lot of the details, um, we've just already seen real material changes on the ground in far flung places. You know, I, I didn't expect a first kind of multi day storage factory to pop up in West Virginia necessarily if we were making bets a few years ago and, you know, Louisiana's doing its own energy transition things. Hawaii's working on a hydrogen hub. Like, there's just all over the place uh, you're starting to see real changes in factories and, and projects and things. Um, so it's not just a, a handful of, of states leading the charge anymore. Uh, I, I took the instruction to uh, characterize how the rollout has gone so far, and I used an adverb, uh, methodically, because let's face it, this stuff takes a lot of work to put into practice, um, moving the letter of the law into kind of real world programs, uh, incentives, subsidies and the like through all the federal agencies. And it's taken an enormous effort. Um, DOE, Treasury, um, EPA have been just really overloaded with work. And I think that may have led to some anticipation and perhaps some concern from folks who want to see it happening faster. But I think that the results uh, of this methodical approach, according to the folks I talked to, are program designs that are largely laying out a pretty strong foundation and framework for this money to actually go out and do the transformative stuff it's supposed to do. There are some noteworthy caveats on that. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we are starting to get to the point where the rubber is starting to hit the road on this. All right. So, Jeff, let's go to you to talk about some of the 
meticulous uh, crafting of rules around incentives, because this is a really key piece of how a lot of the spending is going to happen. And as you say, you know, there, there are rules being crafted inside the Department of Energy, at the IRS, at the Treasury Department, inside the EPA, some other entities. And there are a bunch of uh, tax credits and subsidies here that that all need to be continually worked. Um, some have yet to be rolled out in terms of guidelines. So um, this is very complicated. Like, where do the major programs stand in terms of being real and ready to roll out when you look at, like, the, ma- the main subsidies for deployment and manufacturing? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that when it comes to the kind of clean energy deployment and manufacturing side, the wind, the solar, the the EVs and the batteries, there's a couple key guidances from the Treasury Department and IRS that have come out uh, in the last couple of months that have been really important. One big one is the domestic content adder. Uh, let's remember that the uh, ITC and PTC, these investment and production tax credits that have been around for a long time, not only got extended through at least the next decade by the Inflation Reduction Act, but uh, also had a bunch of adders uh, at brought to them. You can get a 10% adder for domestic content being a a big part of your project. You can get another 10% adder for uh, investing or building in an energy community. That's a place where there's a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure um, and uh, where economic impacts of closing it down could be significant. There's a 10% adder for uh, low-income communities. And all of these things need to be defined. And their definitions can be somewhat controversial. Um, the domestic content adder is a big one because there are a couple key things that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to do that need to balance building up this domestic manufacturing and economic capacity to build all the solar and wind and batteries and EVs that we want and uh, deploy that stuff as fast as possible. And let's face it, for solar in particular, um, for EVs, to some extent, for batteries, to a larger extent, most of that stuff is not made inside the U.S. right now. So there's been quite a bit of attention paid by different sectors of those industries on just how the Treasury Department is defining what makes up domestic content, how much of that stuff needs to be made or produced or mined or assembled in the United States, how deep into the battery or the solar panel do you go? That's really complicated stuff, and in some cases, it's pitting companies or industries that are focused on building stuff here in the United States against companies and industries that are focused on putting the stuff that's built in other countries to work in the United States. So that's been tricky, uh, and it's still in the works. Um, but it's it's getting the progress is being made, and that's important because speed is of the essence, of course. So let me pause you there because there are some other programs that we we need to discuss. So when it comes to domestic content, uh, the tax credits to promote domestic manufacturing, how is the specter of these credits or or how is the utilization of these credits actually playing out? So Julian and Maria, you've you've been looking into how this is impacting um, battery manufacturing, solar manufacturing, wind manufacturing. Um, Julian, how would you say this is starting to impact activity along what you call the battery belt? Yeah, well, the um, you know most tangible outcome is like a whole roster of billion dollar factories opening up. Uh, Quite rapidly. I mean, it, it's it, we're now just coming to a year, and I did my uh, travelogue through the the southeastern battery belt 
back in uh, May, and you know there were already the first wave of factories opening up. Those ones had obviously been kind of developed and, and decided on before the IRA. But what uh, was very palpable is the factories that had already been built. You know, just seeing where the trends are going, they're expanding capacity. And then there's all these other factories coming. Uh, that have now been announced and are, are getting constructed, and um, you know it's just it's kind of wild to see like <laughs> a whole wide ranging battery cell and EV manufacturing base spring up almost overnight, uh, especially in a part of the country that you know was was never that interested in say promoting electric vehicle adoption or, or mandating it you know the way uh, say California does. So yeah, we're we're seeing uh, a lot more battery cell production in the U.S. than there ever used to be. Um, some of the analysts I talked to anticipate a 10x uh, growth in in cell capacity by 2027. Um, so, is that thanks to IRA manufacturing incentives? Yeah, well, there's there's the um, yeah there's a few different incentives. So for for storage. Power plants on the grid. Um, there's now a standalone tax credit to to, to build a, a battery plant. Where in the past you had to stick it onto a solar plant to to kind of claim the the credit. Um, so that is going to really help people building batteries, you know, on their own to to store the clean energy that's that's being made. Um, and then, like Jeff mentioned, the domestic content incentives on the on the purchasing side. So you, both for electric vehicles and for for the grid, if it's made here, you get more uh, more of a tax credit, and you know it creates these competitive pressures because if if you're not building here and your competitors are, you you just can't. You know, be as as cost competitive as them, so it, it it sort of forces the the business folks to, you know, do whatever they can to to build it over here. And Maria, how's this playing out a little bit differently in the wind business? These incentives are largely promoting new factories in batteries and solar. For the wind business, it's a little bit different. There's a lot of wind manufacturing already in the country, some of which has been uh, closed. Uh, how are the incentives are changing the nature of wind manufacturing in this country? Sure. So, right. For solar batteries, other types of clean energy technologies, these incentives are kind of ushering the first wave of domestic manufacturing. The U.S. wind manufacturing sector has largely existed, uh, you know, for decades, but it's kind of had this on-again, off-again nature. And in, in most recent years, a lot of domestic capacity for making blades and turbine towers in particular has declined because companies are finding it kind of more economically attractive to make these things overseas. So the Inflation Reduction Act is kind of bringing about what experts have called a second renaissance for the U.S. wind manufacturing space. Factories in Iowa and Kansas, other parts of the country that were idling or shuttered are now reopening um, and expanding even to not just uh, resume production, but begin making larger turbines, which is sort of becoming the norm for projects. So it's kind of... It's breathing new life into this this sector that has been very cyclical in nature. Um, analysts are hoping that that this will kind of break the spell in a way that the there can be some policy certainty, some financial certainty for the companies that make and develop uh, wind wind parts. Yeah, and the stuff that that Julian and Maria are reporting on these are manufacturing facilities that are very tangible. And Jeff, you're often reporting on like really arcane rules that. Ultimately, that may be hard for people to follow, but ultimately lead to these real-world 
impacts. And there are still a lot of debates over uh, how to structure some of the rules. What are some of the other flashpoints in terms of incentive structures that are still in play right now? The hydrogen one is obviously a big one. We covered that on the show. You've reported on that extensively. So hydrogen and what else? How, what, are you, what are the big flashpoints? Uh, another big one is electric vehicles. Um, the uh, tax credit available to people who buy electric vehicles is predicated on a number of kind of domestic or free trade partner country uh, manufacturing or kind of like supply rules. Those were the rules that Senator Joe Manchin, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, whose vote was critical to getting this passed through a evenly divided Senate, uh, kind of insisted on so that um, his fear was that uh, China, the primary supplier of a lot of these EV materials, would uh, win too much unless we you know, supported domestic manufacturing. And those rules are complicated. They have, in fact, barred several uh, uh, makes and models of EVs from receiving all of or any of the commercial ta- or the, the tax credit that you get from uh, when you buy a vehicle. And there's a big pending decision uh, coming out of the U.S. Treasury Department that has to do with uh, entities of foreign concern, which is a nebulous category, but which most people anticipate will include China, uh, starting at some point in the future, if you make a car that has uh, any materials or batteries or uh, components from uh, an entity of foreign concern, you're not going to be eligible for that tax credit. That, that's going to be a big one. There's a lot of controversy over whether or not um, it's overly kind of restrictive to uh, getting as many people to buy as many EVs as possible on one hand, and the idea that allowing China to continue to maintain its dominance in that part of the EV industry will undercut the hopes of building and uh, kind of thriving uh, U.S. EV manufacturing sector on the other. So tricky one, still in the works. And and something else, it's not quite a flashpoint, but just something to watch is going to be to what extent power plant developers are actually able to get all of those adders and and file their paperwork and and qualify because um, right now there's the potential to basically get half off your new clean energy plan. It's like 30% tax credit if you meet these labor standards uh, and then add add on 10 for domestic content and add on another 10 for the energy community thing. Um, but you know we it, we haven't seen people going out and like taking that swing and, and hitting all of those and, and qualifying uh, yet. So, so we got to see like if, if there's any friction around that. But you know, we, we have started to see, for instance, solar developers targeting old uh, coal mines. I just wrote about one in, in Kentucky where they're literally building the 800 megawatt solar plant on a, on a decommissioned coal mine. Um, it seems clearly targeted at, at claiming those credits. Um, so you know, it, it is changing to developer behavior already, which is, which is, you know, cool to see. What a fantastic time to be an energy tax law firm. Absolutely. <laughs> That's, they're the real winners. Yeah. I mean, hopefully the planet, but definitely the tax lawyers. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? 
Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com events or click the link in the show notes. You know, I want to go back to the, the foreign investment piece because I think the U.S. clean energy ecosystem has benefited from a lot of foreign direct investment. You know, in the battery space, I think we see a decent amount of South Korean companies investing in in, in that market. Um, historically, in the wind business, it's been a lot of European players that have been advanced manufacturers that have invested in the U.S. More than half of the incentives are actually being, in, on the manufacturing side, are being taken advantage of by firms outside the U.S. So uh, it's, it's, it's significant. Uh, and it can ultimately be a good thing. We want to attract more foreign direct investment, but we also want to make sure that American companies are are able to blossom as well. So can, can any of you speak to the foreign companies that are active here and whether or not the structure of those incentives will impact uh, that level of activity from outside the U.S. back into the U.S.? Totally. Well, yeah, South Korea is is a huge player in this. Um, and SK is, is one of the big... Uh, kind of conglomerates that's made a big play. They 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 weren't really big on the radar as far as manufacturing batteries for for the U.S. market before all this, but um, they they were the first to open the, a big billion dollar one in Georgia, and they've struck all these partnerships with American automakers so that they can you know spin up uh, battery lines just you know within a hundred miles or so of the car factories that are going to then. Take those batteries, put them in a car, and then it rolls off, you know, to to market. And yeah, there've been a few others. I mean, Q Cells is a solar manufacturer um, that has uh, already had a factory in Georgia, but they're drastically scaling up capacity and even adding uh, the cell and wafer, like the earlier precursor steps, so that it's a it's a full U.S. based um, supply chain for for their solar production. Um, and you know. I think there is a sort of geopolitical dimension to it because uh, politically right now both both parties are taking a tough stance on China and there have been some Chinese companies trying to come in and, and do these sort of battery partnerships too, but those get way more scrutiny politically, uh, whereas South Korea is, is looked at as kind of like a, a friendly and, and non, non-threatening um, kind of ally to, to work with here. It's important to remember that, particularly when it comes to tax credits, I mean, not only are tax credits uh, incentivizing capital investments and and job growth in the country, to get a tax credit to make something of it, you got to pay taxes in the United States. So that's kind of a a, a nifty trick. I, I do know there are complexities around here. I, I was just reading about guidance from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development about how multinational companies. Uh, will be taxed under the good old global anti-base erosion model rules. I, I'm sure there are <laughs> interesting complexities about how multinationals uh, make use of U.S. federal tax credits, um, but I think it's that, that's an important point to to remember. 
Maria, how's this played out in the wind business? Yeah, I, um, in the the U.S. wind manufacturing space, a lot of the major players are uh, European or Chinese companies. Uh, General Electric is obviously a huge kind of U.S. player, but it's definitely a global industry. A lot of the expertise in manufacturing base has been um, kind of developed and advanced overseas. And even though there there has historically been a presence in the U.S., I think the goal is to kind of bring some of what's been happening elsewhere um, domestically through Chinese companies, European players, and um, U.S.-based companies also. Let's talk about the wind business a little bit more. I mean, the wind business, more than any other clean energy business in the U.S., has been a victim of these boom-bust cycles. If you look at this chart of the PTC expiration, you can see activity rise and fall as the tax credit has passed and then um, and then expires again. In the solar business, you've had a lot of state-level incentive programs and um, you know really robust programs on the local level that have kept solar going even through tough times. And the, and the wind business has really suffered in a big way when you see these boom-bust cycles. And that has hit manufacturers pretty hard. Can you talk about that history and then how that might change under the IRA with longer-term, more consistent tax credits? Sure, yeah. So the the first utility-scale wind farms were developed in, in California in the 1980s, and then the kind of the broader wind energy sector really took off in the 90s uh, with the passage uh, when Congress passed the production tax credit, the PTC. And that gives developers a few cents for every kilowatt hour of electricity that their wind farms develop. And it's um it's crucial. It's it's basically, you know, how developers can make these projects pencil out. And so every few years, though, Congress kind of hems and haws, and maybe it'll lapse, and maybe they'll bring it back. And whenever that happens, you see this spike in development of of wind projects, and then this crash. And it kind of has been that way since '92. For manufacturers, that means that they are also ramping up, ramping down, uh, in step with the developers. You know, they don't want to be in a position where they have all of this inventory and know where to put it because, you know, these turbines, the blades alone are hundreds of feet long, uh, cost a lot of money, and you don't just, you don't even have the place to let it pile up. So they, they try and match their manufacturing pretty close to development. So with the Inflation Reduction Act, it's going to extend the existing uh, PTC for a couple years, and then we'll replace it with a clean energy tax credit that applies not just to wind, but to all sorts of um, emission-free technology sources. And the goal is to give them more policy certainty and uh, longevity, which in turn will um, enable manufacturers to kind of have more predictable flows of, you know, how many turbine blades do we need? How many gearboxes do we need? How many motors, et cetera? Julian, you hinted at this in your one of your first answers, but what was the outlook for clean energy manufacturing before the IRA compared to after the IRA? It, it's pretty completely changed. Um, I, I think for the last decade or so, as clean energy has been ramping up, it, it was a kind of implicitly acknowledged that everyone was assuming this would just be an import-based industry. Like, no one was really going out and and hammering that point, but you know, if you could get it cheaper from China or cheaper from Southeast Asia um, and install a lot of clean energy that way, fight climate change, why not? It seemed that was sort of the consensus. And and now, within just a year 
it's it's already flipped to this idea of uh, make as much as we can in the U.S. And um, you're even hearing people like I, I talked to the Energy Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm. She's talking about getting to a point where the U.S. can export clean energy, and that uh, this can actually push the the global fight against climate change uh, along faster because the U.S. will be uh, kind of making so many great energy technologies that they can export to places that don't have their their own factories and and help it that way. So that's like a complete. We don't know if we'll get there. You know, at the very least, it'll be many years before we're we're actually able to meet our own needs, which of course are drastically growing as a as a part of this. Um, but uh, we're certainly you know making a making a run at it and. Uh, you know, I just saw a new solar factory announcement today from First Solar. Uh, you know, like it's it's every every week. It seems like there's some new additional capacity getting greenlit. It's important to remember that these tax credits aren't just for folks who buy and deploy these technologies. There are also a lot of tax credits for folks who make these technologies. Um, specifically, there's this new program called 45X. This is something that hasn't existed before for U.S. clean energy and technology manufacturers. It's a per-unit production tax credit. You know, uh, the number of solar panels, battery cells, etc., you make, you get a tax credit. Um, And that, I think, has been highlighted by folks in the U.S. manufacturing side as being kind of the key plank of this manufacturing renaissance that we're talking about. Um, As a matter of fact, for the first five years of that tax credit, manufacturers are going to be able to receive that payment in the form of direct pay. Uh, instead of having to offset it against their uh, tax liabilities, they can just get a check cut from the U.S. Treasury for the amount of that tax credit, even if it exceeds uh, you know, how much tax they have to pay. There are a couple of places where this direct pay is being put into place for the first time that is really kind of novel and that can really kind of expand how much uh, economic activity these tax credits are going to make happen. Yeah, I'm trying to keep them all straight. 48C, 45X, 45Q. They didn't, they didn't make it easy I, for us. Yeah. <laughs> no. I think that the alphabet and number lobby had something to do with this. Yeah, Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah, the Sesame Street lobby was definitely involved in the creation of these tax credits. Um, and, and so, so let's like turn to some of the downstream impacts, Jeff. I know you're working on a story right now about the impact of direct pay, and I think what is really important about the way that the investment tax credit is set up is that um, historically, entities that couldn't take advantage of these credits can now take advantage of them. So, community level organizations, tax exempt organizations, uh, suddenly have a direct payment mechanism. And so they can quali- they can be a part of projects that they historically couldn't be a part of. Love to get all of your takes on how this might start to impact the deployment of new kinds of projects and suddenly create a community level benefit that wasn't there before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the first time, non-taxable entities can get the value of tax credits under the direct pay provisions. Um, that means uh, city, municipal governments, municipal utilities. It means rural rural electric co-ops, which uh, provide electricity to about 45 million Americans. It means the big federal agencies like the Tennessee Valley Authority. But it also means community nonprofit groups and community organizations. I 
talked to a uh, CEO of a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit group that is working with a uh, faith-based nonprofit in Baltimore, Maryland, to put direct pay to use for uh, the first time in a uh, in a uh, youth center and main campus solar and battery project that's supposed to help reduce their energy bills and give people backup power during you know blackouts. Um, there's there's just an enormous amount of potential demand from these nonprofit organizations, everyone who doesn't pay taxes, to put this money to work. Um, it's kind of hard to know how much pent-up demand there might be because nothing like this has ever really existed before, but it could be significant. And it really does give uh, community organizations the tools to capture the value of a tax credit mechanism that has largely been something that you have to have a relationship with a major bank or financial institution to take advantage of before. And and yeah, we should we sh- maybe back up and note that, you know, the, the U.S. has chosen to uh, do its clean energy policy via the tax code uh, for, for various political reasons. And in this case, you know, they were able to pass this bill through the reconciliation um, mechanism. And so it, it sort of had to be more tax oriented. But there's a lot of real downsides to a, a tax based uh, energy policy, meaning, you know, if if the way you promote clean energy adoption is through tax credits, you have to have a tax burden to to you know actually benefit from those and and like we joked about earlier it's uh kind of funnels everything through this very um you know professional servicey you know contracts and and law you know lawyers and accounting and all all of that um so i think you could think about direct pay as a way to democratize the the access a bit where suddenly you don't need to be a big Wall Street player or, or have friends who are big Wall Street players to, to benefit from these clean energy incentives. Um, and it, it'll be really interesting to watch the public power sector and the municipals uh, take advantage of that. We, you know, we, we still don't know if they, if they will to the fullest extent, but um, for a long time, all, all the customers who are served by these, these public entities, they, their utilities couldn't Build clean their own renewables in a way that was competitive with what a private for-profit company could do. Um, so as a result, you know the TVA or, or uh, other other entities around the country had to sort of like contract it out and and do these PPAs and let someone else benefit from the tax credits. Um, and you know that's not exactly fair. Uh, so having a, a world where there's like finally a level level playing field and and all types of utilities, public or private, can really go go full speed ahead on these is is going to be a whole new dynamic to watch. I would just add that that um, the dynamic is also playing out at sort of the consumer level, the household level as well. That a lot of programs under the Inflation Reduction Act al- allow homeowners. Um, or households really to access benefits um, directly through rebates instead of through tax incentives, which have kind of historically been a big barrier for people interested in, you know, up, uh, weatherizing or making their homes more energy efficient, buying an electric vehicle, buying an electric bike, all of these things that you kind of need to make enough money to be able to receive that benefit. So, um, and I know Jeff's reported a lot on on the the Hira benefits as well. Um, but yeah, just pointing out, but there's a, it's kind of across the board some um, changing the dynamic in in a way that will kind of spread the benefits, hopefully, kind of more widely. 
And so while we're on that point, I guess, Jeff, you have been focusing on on that, some of the home efficiency rebates. You know, you're, there's also this big question about how the uh, the lending authority under the Federal Green Bank will come together. I don't think it's called the Green Bank. What is it called? The Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. Get, that's right. The Greenhouse yeah. Gas Reduction Fund. Yeah, yeah. That morphed into that. So, but 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 that is all still very much in 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 development. So, um, h- how what where where does that stand? Uh, let's see. Actually, uh, the EPA, which is in charge of this Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which a lot of folks shorthand as a national green bank, has just started uh, putting out guidance for how folks can start to apply for that money. Um, we're talking about $27 billion in total. It gets a little confusing because $7 billion of that is for a specific kind of subset of uh, solar uh, and energy efficiency projects that came in under a, a separate you know, uh, piece of legislation that got folded into the IRA. Um, and then you got $20 billion that is for the formation of this federal green bank. Of that, $8 billion is focused on low-income communities. And the idea of a green bank is you've got a public or quasi-public entity, and it goes out and it looks for places that really have trouble borrowing money to do stuff that helps the climate or helps uh, their uh, energy spend. And you go and you make loans and you prove out that the loans are good loans that you can pay them back. And you draw in private sector lending kind of in increasing amounts as you kind of prove out that these are good loans for the private sector to make. So the big kind of multiplier value there, which has been proven out by some of the state and county level green banks out there, Connecticut, New York being some of the earliest and biggest, as well as a solar loan fund in Florida, um, is is that you get a, a big multiplier on the private sector kind of lending that comes along with a green bank loan. So, but there's never been a kind of federal entity to do this. This has been a big push of the green bank backers for decades now. Um, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund makes it happen. There's going to be a uh, combination of kind of centrally directed lending as well as money being moved out to community development financial institutions. Um, And we're going to see what happens. It's going to be very interesting to see the applications come in. It can be everything from community solar on low-income family housing to energy efficiency projects. There are some Washington, D.C. projects that are doing like stormwater uh, retrieval and and control. And there are some projects in Connecticut and elsewhere that are financing uh, third-party solar development in underserved communities. So there's a real wide variety of stuff that you could really see proving itself out to the private sector that these are good loans to make and really expanding the capacity of the private sector where most of the money is to really drive a lot of investment in these places that have been historically kind of barred from being able to get at it before. I think the last piece we want to touch on is the industrial sector. And Maria, this is an area that you focus a lot on. You focus on aviation, heavy industry, heavy transport. Um, and and there's this, you know, one particular tax credit, the 45Q tax credit that will go toward um, uh, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Uh, I wonder... How is the carbon management industry potentially benefiting from that? And is there anything in heavy industry that is starting to evolve as a result of the IRA? 
So in terms of the 45Q, from what I understand, and this might be an evolving definition, but at least initially, uh, 45Q applied to projects that captured carbon dioxide and stored it permanently in some sort of geologic reserve. Um, And so that would not apply to uh, projects that potentially are capturing carbon and turning them into sustainable aviation fuel or, you know, using them to make lower carbon concrete. So um, that is, but as far as I understand, that's still the case, although it might be evolving. And obviously companies that are using carbon would certainly want to be able to take advantage of these tax credits if they can. I would just add that I believe this is under the Infrastructure Act, but the the Department of Energy um, also has a $6 billion program to accelerate innovation in, in the hard to decarbonize space. So steel, aluminum, chemicals, a whole range of industries that contribute a lot uh, to the country's greenhouse gas emissions, to the world's emissions, but um, for which there aren't sort of easy solutions. Certainly using renewable energy where possible will make a big difference, but a, a lot of times in heavy industry, it's the chemical reaction, it's the actual process that's generating emissions and that you know we're still kind of working to find these alternatives for. I, I think we might actually start seeing a, a real carbon capture market appearing in, in the next decade because of these credits. Uh, and just an anecdote about that was I was in Houston this spring f- for a kind of decarbonization conference and was sort of surprised to see these guys on stage with like the nicest looking kind of custom made cowboy boots I've ever seen, like real like money, money making Texas uh, entrepreneurial types. And they, they are developing carbon capture projects to make money on them. Um, and and that's kind of a big shift from the, the past few decades. You've seen uh, really a pretty small number of uh, power projects trying to um, add on carbon capture as like a proof of concept, and even if it's a major oil company doing it, they, they they've never performed all that great. It's always sort of disappointing. And then you have the climate activists saying, "Oh, carbon capture is just a, a a fossil fuel scheme to to keep you know making money and, and keep harming the planet." And and that was kind of this impasse for a while. But now now it seems like these credits are actually significant enough to. Um, Get people going out and and hooking up pipelines and finding these basins and um, you know still very much not clear that it will make sense as a as a like power uh, play but um, for the heavy industry where you you're, there's just going to be emissions in the next decade no matter what um, now there's actually like some real some real juice there to try to try to catch them and and put them in the ground. So we can't really have this conversation about industrial decarbonization without talking about the loan programs office led by a uh, friend of the pod, Jigger Shaw, who um, you know has four hundred billion dollars in loan guarantee authority and loan authority in his office and uh, is trying to figure out how to attract a lot of companies from a lot of different industries to start applying. And I think that's the biggest job he has ahead of him, along with the diligence, you know, the really serious diligence that they're doing for some of these deals. But many of these deals are completely different from what we saw under the last big flurry of loan guarantees that were largely for renewable energy projects. Uh, These are for large industrial decarbonization projects ranging from hydrogen to advanced nuclear to carbon management to long-duration storage and different kinds of storage. So, Jeff, what kind of activity are you seeing from the Loan Programs Office? What's interesting 
to you and what feels different? Well, you're right that they're doing a lot of stuff they've never done before, but that's kind of like, it's meeting the moment, right? They've uh, loaned money to um, companies that are building uh, synthetic graphite for batteries in this country for the first time, companies that are mining and processing lithium in this country uh, at scale for the first time, companies that are building nifty wire harnesses for batteries that can cut the weight and complexity of putting battery cells together uh, for the first time. But what I think is the most uh, kind of intriguing uh, part of the LPO portfolio is this $250 billion in lending authority for something called the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program. Uh, it's also called Section Section 1706. And this money has a really wide remit. It can go to helping to close down and replace coal plants with something cleaner. It can go to transforming oil refineries into low, no-carbon fuel refineries. It can go to building new transmission capacity to allow new clean energy to be built. And the key function that serves, uh, at least uh, as Jigger has described it, is to lend money to repurposing the dirty energy infrastructure that we have today to clean. Because there's a lot of ways to build new clean stuff. It's a lot harder for uh, the financial sector to envision financing the conversion of dirty stuff to clean. That's going to be very interesting. We're still waiting for more clarity on just what might happen with it. We've got nuclear power plants that might want to uh, keep themselves running with it. We have coal plants that could be converted to battery storage or small nuclear reactors or wind and solar farms. There's really a, an enormous range of stuff that could be funded with that. All right. We covered <laughs> an extraordinary amount of ground, but that's what the IRA does. So I, I think I agree with your characterization, Maria, that anticipation is a really apt descriptor for, for uh, this moment. And so if we're thinking about that, if we're anticipating what's next, how are you going to judge whether it's been successful, whether we when we actually get past the anticipation phase and get deeper into the execution phase, what? how will you determine success or how will the people you're talking to determine success? Yeah, there's. I think there's so many ways to define success. I mean, obviously, most important for the climate is in terms of emissions reductions, in terms of amount of clean energy deployed and, you know, replacing fossil fuel infrastructure. But I think um, uh, another metric of success that I'm hearing uh, groups talk about more often is how these projects are developed. Are they developed with public buy-in, community engagement? Do people want these facilities there? And that would be potentially, you know, a big change from how projects have been developed in the past, especially in terms of sort of these polluting industrial infrastructure. You know, are are we developing clean energy in a way that um, supports workers, supports people who are living near these facilities, but hopefully undoes some of the harm to the extent that we can, you know, that uh, his, indus other industries have done historically. So that's what I'm hearing a lot of it from, from folks is sort of, um, can we build new things in a new way, you know, as, as we transition the, the, the economy? Julian, you've traveled the country. You've talked to a lot of people who probably have different definitions of success based on where they live. How are they judging success and how would you judge it? Well, there's so many different ways. I, I mean, I think on the manufacturing side, one metric for success is um, do does clean energy become this this 
pillar of good good jobs for American workers. Um, I think that's already well on its way to that in in just a year's time. Um, but you know that's a that's a huge shift if you think about it from uh, having jobs in installing and and developing these projects in the past to now. Um, in many of these states, I've been to like. New clean energy factories are the biggest new job creators in the entire state, and we're talking like Georgia, Tennessee, uh, you know, West Virginia, like you know, places that that are really eager to have these, even if uh, politically their elected officials weren't, you know, super on board with the the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but I, I think on the big picture, certainly emissions is is the ultimate metric. And I, my my new reporting for uh, the anniversary week is looking at where we're actually headed on the emissions trajectory now. Uh, there's been a whole slew of of studies from all the energy modelers, and um, if you average out the the outlooks now, um, we're, we're headed for on the on the high end of the spectrum. Cutting the U.S. emissions economy wide forty percent uh, uh, from the two thousand five levels by twenty thirty. Um, you recall that the the goal for the country under the Paris Agreement is fifty percent. So it's it's uh, taken us much closer to to achieving that goal than we were without the Inflation Reduction Act. Also, doesn't seem to be uh, everything we need to to get there. Um, but but these are all models that are kind of trying to anticipate. Uh, what's happening with adoption? Uh, you know, as we said before, all all the rules are written and before all the gears are totally in in motion. So, um, you know, it's it's very much possible that once the work gets going in earnest and and additional you know power plant regulations and and state level policies and things like that kick into gear, um, that could carry the country the, the rest of the way to the 50% goal. Um, but, uh, I mean, some of the numbers are kind of wild on, like, the, the, the power production overall could get uh, <laughs> up to, like, 90% carbon-free by 2030 in, in the National Renewable Energy Lab study. That's, like, the high end. Uh, so it's, it's very possible we'll have a totally transformed uh, electricity sector by the end of the decade as a result of this. Jeff, you are right in the middle of some very intense debates. Uh, some of those debates pit industry groups versus progressive green groups. Sometimes they pit industry against industry, but there are very stark contrasts and views over like what would determine success when you roll out uh, incentives. How are you judging success when you look at some of these incentive debates and then just generally programmatic wide, what are your metrics for success? Yeah, well, obviously we we want to see the forecast of what the Inflation Reduction Act can do across emitting sectors to be play to to play out and to reach the high ends of those expectations. We're going to be watching that. There's some worries that the policy could actually lead to an increase in emissions. We want to guard against that. Um, but I think that the key is to make manifest the reality of the fact that all these green technologies are actually economically better than the fossil fuel alternatives. I mean, you know, wind and solar power is far cheaper to produce than uh, fossil fuel power. Electric vehicles are far cheaper to run and fuel and own over their lifetime than our fossil fuel vehicles. Energy efficiency in homes costs a lot of money up front, but it pays off dividends over the long term. These are all 
economic facts, but we haven't been able to convert the way we do business and make investments to take advantage of them. I, I think that if the Inflation Reduction Act's policies work, they will have gotten us through that transition phase to the point where all of the private sector capital that is unable to invest and make real those truths about clean energy can, at the end of this 10-year phase, be fully committed to making those investments and earning those profits as a result of these fund fundamental facts. Um, and then we'll all be better off. I mean, it's such a dramatic change from the idea of uh, climate change being something that we all have to pay to combat to climate change being something that we all benefit from combating. And that's not to mention the fact that we're saving the planet. I think that's that's such a good point. Like, re remember when the the discourse was like, let's impose a tax on carbon and make everyone everyone can pay a little bit more, and then we'll fight climate change. <laughs> and now now that's just like gone from the conversation. And instead, it's like, well, what if you got new jobs and saved money on your car, and you know, lowered your costs of living, and you know, it, it it's the inflation reduction. You know, if we can like permanently lower everyone's energy bill then they can spend that money on other things like it's a it's a totally different kind of uh, vision of of fighting climate change in a way that like materially improves people's lives in the, in the process couldn't agree more and as Jigger Shaw likes to say it's the greatest wealth opportunity on the planet and a lot of people are coming around to that year 1 was big year 2 is going to be pretty gargantuan i know you'll be following it julian specter thanks so much it's always a pleasure. Jeff St. John, thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Maria Gallucci, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find all of the coverage from these reporters uh, in our show notes. We'll have a link to the main page that synthesizes all the year one reporting on the IRA and the impact on manufacturing and deployment. Uh, Sean Marquand is our engineer. Dalvin Abouage is my co-producer. Original music came from Sean Marquand, Echo Finch, and Blue Dot Sessions. And Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food, and agriculture, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And if you uh, want to disagree, agree with anything that we talked about in this pod, hit us up on social media. You can find um, all the folks on this conversation on, on X, I guess. I guess we're calling it X now. I still want to say Twitter. I, don't, <laughs> I can't find it on my phone. Uh, but I guess you can find us on X and uh, give us a rating on Apple and Spotify. That's hugely helpful. Send the show to a friend or colleague and we'll catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Mm -hmm.